0: From chapter 5, verse 6 of Hebrews, all the way through the end of chapter 7 that we're going to look at today, the author of Hebrews is doing what we call an exposition of this verse that we had quoted a couple times here. This verse that you see in verse 17, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He's quoting Psalm 110, verse 4, and basically he's taking all these chapters from all these, all these verses from Chapter 5, verse 6, all the way through chapter 7, verse 28, to exposit, to kind of break down, to explain why that scripture is so important to Jesus' followers. And if you remember the context, Hebrews is written to Hebrews, Jewish believers in Jesus who are, who are tempted to maybe go back to Judaism, go back to a sacrificial system because they're being persecuted by fellow Jews who don't believe in Jesus. And the author is trying to encourage them to say, no, Jesus is better. Stick with Jesus. Don't go back to the sacrificial system. Stick with Jesus. Now, one of the things that would make it tempting for these guys to go back to the sacrificial system was that in going into that system and sort of bringing your offering as required by the Old Testament law on the days it was required, there's a sort of a tangible experience there. You can You you can take this, you can find the spotless lamb, you can have a priest look at that lamb and say, yes, this will be an acceptable sacrifice to God. You can take that lamb to another uh, another priest who you know will take it in and lay its hands on that lamb and sacrifice that lamb in your name and your stead and you know you can have a confidence because you have that kind of a priest that God is going to accept what you've done. So you have this kind of tangible experience. And because you have that tangible experience, that helps you to feel like you can have confidence in going to God. And so what the author of Hebrews wants to do is talk about, well, okay, he's not saying that priesthood is bad. He's wanting to say, listen, we understand why you see priesthood as important. What we're wanting you to understand is Jesus brings a better priesthood. Something that's more tangible than just the occasional offering of a sacrificial lamb. It's the the tangibility of knowing God himself, of being connected to God personally through an unchanging relationship. And so really what we're going to do is we're going to, as we unpack this chapter, we're going to kind of see how he kind of gives three ways that this priesthood that Jesus established is better than what the Old Testament priesthood was. And it all kind of revolves around this really sort of strange character named Melchizedek. He starts off in verse 1 of chapter 7 by saying this Melchizedek, and he, he lists a bunch of things about Melchizedek that we'll go through in a second. But first, I want you to see where this guy is mentioned, okay? Genesis chapter 14, it'll be on the screen. You don't have to turn there right now. Genesis 14 says this. Here's the only three verses besides Psalm 110 verse 4 that the Old Testament talks about this guy Melchizedek. It says, Genesis 14 Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him, that is, he blessed Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And it says, and Abraham gave him, that's Melchizedek, a tithe of all. Now, you've got to understand the context of Genesis chapter 14. If you you don't know the book of Genesis, if you're not familiar with it, you can go on our website and you can listen to a whole series through the whole book and get familiar with that book of the Bible. But in Genesis 14, you have a situation where Abraham's uh, nephew, Lot, is taken captive by this conglomeration of five kings and these kings kind of take over these are five kind of leaders of city states in that area of Mesopotamia and they basically they're they're kind of running rampage and taking over smaller city states all over the place and in doing so they capture Abraham's nephew Lot so Abraham what he does is he gets his 312 servants and who are highly trained servants so these guys would not just been knowing how to serve teas and coffees but knowing how to fight you know He gets these guys, and he attacks these five kings, and he wins. He does so because he wants to get his nephew Lot back. And so as he leaves that area, having had great victory, he has his nephew Lot. He also has the spoils of war. He has the things that you pick up when you defeat your enemies. It was a known thing that what you would do in that time when you would go to war is you, you defeated your enemies, you got the stuff that was on their body, the jewelry, the clothing, whatever was worth money. That's how it worked. So, so he has all these spoils of war, and as he's heading back to Canaan, he's heading back to his, where he lives, what happens? This mysterious character comes up, Melchizedek, and all we know about him is what we've read right there in those three verses. We know nothing else. And what's interesting is this character who comes out, who's, who's called the, the priest of the God Most High, this was before, listen, God had established a priesthood. Now, what's interesting about this is that you have this idea of priesthood that's really important in Scripture because what you have in Scripture is it starts with the assumption that there's a God who wants to know the people that He's created, that He created them to know Him. That's the whole reason He made them. But this God who's perfect creates these people, these people choose to rebel against God. They are no longer are, are perfect, and they break fellowship. So for that fellowship to be restored, for there to be a connection, there's a need for a mediator. And that mediation would come through sacrifices and eventually what would happen is uh, that before God established the priesthood, you'd have these groups of human beings who would know they need to get right with their creator God or right with whatever their understanding of God was. And so they would assign someone to be the priest, assign someone who, make, who would make the sacrifices. I'm not saying that all those people had equal access to God or were right with God. That's a whole other Bible study. But what I'm trying to say is this is how human religion was developing. God creates the world. God creates man to know him. Man rebels against him. God provides a way for restoration to take place. Man kind of tweaks that in a bunch of different ways. But priesthood itself was a needful thing. Someone had to mediate between them. So when Abraham sees this priest of the Most High God, and that that phrase, Most High God, means the God above any other God. So he would be not just a God who is limited to a certain area of the world, like like the the pagan gods would be. This would be, in a sense, the Creator God, the one who's over all. He meets this, this priest of the Most High God, and interesting enough, here's Abraham, who's been called specifically by God, to to be the one who becomes the father of many nations, to be the one who who is to bless the whole earth. God calls him, makes a covenant with him. This Abraham, when he sees Melchizedek, what does he do? He worships through giving a tithe. Now, this is interesting. It's interesting because what we see about Melchizedek, the author of Hebrews pulls out and says, man, this sounds a lot like Jesus. Look what he says. He says, He calls it, his name is Melchizedek. He's the king of Salem. What does the king of Salem mean? It means the king of peace. But what does his name Melchizedek mean? It means, listen, king of righteousness. His name means king of righteousness. He's he's the king or the, the king priest. He's the royal priest of this city called Salem, which would have been ancient Jerusalem. Salem means peace. Shalom in Hebrew. And so the the author of Hebrews is kind of going, listen, here's what happens. Here's this king of righteousness. Then he's also called king of peace. And because there's nothing said about him, about like where he came from, like what his, his genealogy was, would be or wouldn't be, which is hugely important in Hebrew thought, it says that he's without father, without mother, without genealogy. Have neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, and he remains a priest for continually. Now, one view of this scripture is that this guy, Melchizedek, was what we call a Christophany. And a Christophany would be a pre-New Testament appearance of God the Son in the Old Testament. Now, I'm not going to get into Christophanies because I don't think that's what this is. <laughs> I believe what this is, is simply the author of Hebrews going, okay, look, God has this guy in Scripture for a reason. He paints a picture. Because to Hebrew thought, I guarantee you most Hebrews before the time that David wrote Psalm 110, where he says that, that the, the Messiah one day will also be a priest according to the uh, order of Melchizedek, That before David wrote that psalm, for thousands of years, because Abraham has this experience 4,000 years before the time of Christ, 2,000 years before the time of King David, that in that 2,000 year period, people were going, Who's this Melchizedek guy and why is he in Scripture? Because if he was important according to Jewish thought, there would be genealogies, they name his mother, they name his father, all that stuff would be there, and it's not there. Why is it there? And so it's interesting to me that when, it, when it's there, that 2,000 years later when David, King David, you know David, David who killed Goliath, David, okay, David when he's worshiping the Lord and writing songs to the Lord and he writes Psalm 110, knowing God has promised him that through his line would come his chosen king, God's chosen king, the Messiah, who would rule the world, that he thinks about this character, Melchizedek, and thinks this is the guy that foreshadows that chosen king. And so the author of Hebrews is breaking this out. He's saying, listen, do you recognize that this priesthood, it was already foreshadowed? He's wanting the Hebrews to know, listen, you're you're stuck with priesthood thinking, okay, priesthood is all about the Levites, all about what the the law says the priesthood should be. But God established a priesthood way before then that was going to foreshadow his chosen king who would also be his high priest. Now, here's what's interesting as well. He says specifically, first his name being translated King of Righteousness, then also, he says, King of Salem, which means King of Peace. There's an order here on purpose. The author wants us to see that here's what happens. Righteousness comes before peace. A very important order. We need to understand this because this is what we see happening with Jesus himself. Jesus comes on the scene, Right? He's born a, a very kind of, um, in, a, in a miraculous way obviously, but he's, he's born in an obs- to an obscure family in an obscure little village outside of Jerusalem. And doesn't really come on the scene until he's about 12 years old when we have what Luke records, him going to the temple to worship with his family. But Jesus stays behind and is sort of having a good, lively debate with the religious rulers of his day. And they're blown away by how much this 12-year-old kid knows. And then he's off the scene again. He submits to his parents. He's off the scene again until he's 30 years old. Then he comes back on the scene and begins to preach because John the Baptist, his cousin, says, the Messiah is going to come. You need to turn back to God. Get baptized to show that you're turning back to God. The Messiah is going to come. And Jesus comes on the scene showing himself to be the Messiah. Now, when he comes on the scene, here's what he does. He lives in a way that is so righteous. Do you guys know what we mean by righteous? It's kind of a churchy word, isn't it? Righteous simply means that you're right with God. That as far as God's concerned, you are and you do right. Do you understand? That's what righteous means. Things as they are meant to be. You're right. Jesus spent the first three and a half years of his ministry not just teaching right things, Not just doing right things in a sense of doing things that would show that he has the authority of God, but living in such a way, listen, that when he's finally arrested, the night he's going to be killed, nobody can accuse him of anything. Not a single thing wrong. He establishes what righteousness looks like. This is righteousness, to see what Jesus is, This is what God says is right. This is God's standard, Ten commandments, they're tough enough to try to keep, but God says it's going to go a bit higher. I'm going to become a man and walk this earth righteously. Jesus walked as a real man, perfectly righteous. Everything he did was pleasing to God. Every thought, every attitude, every action, every word. And it was in being the righteous one that when he's sacrificed on the cross, he does so to provide Peace for us. That he can, we can have peace with God. See, here's the thing: before you can have peace with God, and maybe I need to say this as well. The Bible teaches, guys, that we are naturally, by nature, enemies of God. You need to understand this. This This is what the Scripture says. The Scripture teaches that we're enemies of God. Now, you might go, that's a bit harsh. I I wouldn't say God's my enemy. Does God want me to be his enemy? No, God doesn't want us to be his enemies. It's we who want God as an enemy. Because God makes man to know him, and the last thing we want to do is know him. We want to know a God we can control, we like religion. We like a God that we can control, we can tell what to do, we can pray and He gives us what He wants. We like that, but we don't like a God who's all-powerful and tells us what to do and has authority over our lives. We don't like that. And so what do we do? We push God away naturally. We're enemies of God. So here's the thing. There's no peace with God right now. Naturally speaking, we're not born with peace with God. We're born as God's enemies. But here's the good news. The good news is God sends Jesus, listen, To make peace. It's like this. We hate God. We wish God was not who he's revealed himself to be. But God says, look, I'm going to make it even clearer who I am. And I'm going to do so. And when I do so, you're going to hate me even more. So much so you're going to crucify me. But in crucifying me, I'm going to turn that around to pay for your sin, your hatred, so we can have peace. You see, when Jesus died, he didn't just wash away our sin, He, living a perfect, uh, perfectly righteous life, is able, therefore, to give us His righteousness as a gift. That's what He does. We can have peace with God. Why? Because we can know we can be totally right with God, as righteous before God as Jesus is, because of what He's done for us. Righteousness before peace. Now, this is something the author keeps bringing up over and over again, the author of Hebrews. And this is interesting because it's, it's not an accident, guys, that Melchizedek's name is Melchizedek. It's not an accident that he happens to be the king of Salem, the king of peace. <laughs> he is the royal priest. He shows, he foreshadows who Jesus would be. Now, took too long on that point. Interesting, what happens, though, Abraham meets up with this, this Melchizedek and what does he do? He worships by giving him a tithe. See, tithing, and tithing is simply giving the first 10%. That's what it means to give the first fruits. That's what happens. It literally says in verse 4 that Abraham gave him a tenth of the spoils. It literally means a tenth off the top. So if you can kind of picture you know, Abraham with his you know, hundreds of thousands of camels and all his soldiers and stuff. And they're kind of traveling back to Canaan and those camels are way down with loot. I mean, there's this like, you know, gold and, and all kinds of, you know, wealthy garments and weapons and stuff and all these things that are worth stuff. And then basically he meets Melchizedek. He sees Melchizedek as a priest. He honors Melchizedek, okay, not by necessarily worshiping him, but by worshiping the God Most High through him by taking the, the, a 10%. 10% of this probably millions of pounds worth of stuff and just laying it at his feet. Say, here you go. Now, what's happening here is the author of Hebrews is wanting to say, look, this tithing, this Melchizedek, or, I'm sorry, Abraham t- uh, tithing to Melchizedek communicates something. I mean, the fact is this Abraham gave 10% of the top. What's the implication? Well, he says what the implication is. He says, one implication is, listen, is that Melchizedek is actually greater than Abraham. Abraham, who would have been exalted by in a Hebrew mindset, is the greatest of all the patriarchs because he's the first one. The nation came out of him. He says that. Doesn't he say that right there in verse 7? Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Abraham, the lesser, receives a blessing from Melchizedek after he tithes to Melchizedek. But also, listen... He also says the other implication is, is that Melchizedek is actually greater than Levi. So therefore, his priesthood is greater than Levi's priesthood. That's what he says here. Check this out. In verse 9, he says, even Levi who receives tithes, and there was Levi as the high priest. That's who the uh, Hebrews were commanded to tithe to, to tithe to the priest so that the, t- the priest could do the ministry in the temple. He says, listen, even, even Levi, so to speak, paid tithes through Abraham because guess what? Abraham is the Father of the Levites. In other words, they're his descendants. You followed me. Now there's something both practical and, and highly theological here that we have to hold on to. First, quickly the practical, okay? Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 and 10 says this: Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now, Proverbs is not about promises, but about principles. So This is not some sort of a guarantee that if you give, God's going to make sure that you're wealthy. That's not the guarantee. There's a principle here that when you honor God with your finances, God blesses your finances. It's a principle. It doesn't just mean tithing. It also means being a good steward of what God gives you. But this principle of first fruits, guys, listen, that still applies to us as, as believers. And so I think there's a principle here that we recognize that you know, one of the reasons we don't pass a plate is because we don't like to make a big deal about money, but one of the reasons we still have a box in the back is not just because we need money to run the church, obviously, but God's providing, we're doing great. The real issue is to give you an opportunity to worship, to say, God, it's all yours, here you go. And I'm not saying it has to be 10% either. That's between you and God, whatever it is, but it should be off the top. It should be something where you look at your finances, you know where the money's going, that's the first step of stewardship, and you say, okay, Lord, what do you want me, you want me to give? And biblically, it should be to your local church because that's what the Scripture says. You know, it says, you know, share in all good things with him who teaches you. doesn't mean it should go to me personally. It should go to this church that teaches you, that equips you. That's biblical. There's something about our tithing that communicates our faith. God, we trust you. You're the giver of good things, therefore we're going to give. All right, that's all I'm going to say about that, the practical, the theological. Jesus says this in John chapter 8. He says to the religious leaders, your father rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to Jesus, you're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? What does Jesus say? Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He's claiming his deity, but he's also saying, listen, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Could it be that Abraham was rejoicing to see his day because when Abraham sees Melchizedek, he goes, God's going to bring a blessing to the world and it's going to be something like this guy, Melchizedek, my family, somehow, someday, is going to bring this great blessing, and it's going to be something like Melchizedek. So, this better priesthood it's foreshadowed in Melchizedek, but also listen quickly it's necessary because of what the law actually says. Verse 11, therefore, it says, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, he says, okay. Why would there be another, a need for another priest that should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not according to Aaron? In other words, listen, if the, the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood that's laid out in God's law in the book of Leviticus, that's what it's about, Leviticus is about the Levitical priesthood, if that wasn't good enough... I mean, or, "Oh, sorry, if that was good enough, why would David say there's going to be a new priesthood when the Messiah comes? According to the older Machazevik, well, he's answering his own question. It's a rhetorical question. He says, verse twelve, for priesthood being changed, in other words, because there's a change for priesthood of necessity, there's also a change of law. Now, now here's the point he's trying to make. Understand this, guys. It's really important for us. The law and the priesthood, Levitical priesthood, are inseparable. So when God dictates what the law says, it's about how that law needs to be carried out through the Levitical priests. They were to lead that, make sure that happens, okay? So if, if God says prophetically through David in Psalm 110, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, that the Messiah is going to, to do this, here's what he's saying, listen. He's saying there's gotta be a new priest, guess what? If there's a new priesthood, that means the law isn't going to apply to us anymore. We're not going to be under it anymore. There's going to be a new law that we're under. Notice he says, verse 13, For he of whom these things are spoken, Jesus, belongs to another tribe, Judah, from which no man has ever officiated at the altar. Jesus, we know, is from the tribe of Judah. There's no priest from that. So what's the answer? Well, the answer is, listen, the answer is that God's going to do something new. Verse 15, And is yet far more evident... And it is yet far more evident, listen, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest, notice, who has come, notice, listen, verse 16, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Now, when he says fleshly, sometimes, you know, if, if you've been around church, you hear that word fleshly, and you might think it means, like, bad or carnal. But that's not what it means here. Fleshly simply means... Dependent upon man's ability. So the priesthood was dependent upon man's ability. Think about this. When it comes to the law of God, the Old Testament law, it was from God. It revealed true things about God. It was God's real, actual standard for His people. But here's the truth. The law demanded perfection, but it couldn't provide for perfection. Listen, the law... Could expose our problem. We're sinners. We fall short of God's, of God's standard. But it couldn't solve our problem. So the Levitical priesthood, that's all they could do. All the Levitical priesthood could do was do what the law does. It could demand perfection, but not provide it. It could listen, it could expose a problem, but not solve it. That's all it could do. And so what, what the author of Hebrews is wanting these guys to understand is that Jesus provides something new, and it's not this commandment that's based on man's ability, but it's a commandment based on the power of an endless life, Jesus' life. It's a priesthood that God ministers to us as a priest, and that ability to minister to us, listen, has nothing to do with our ability. It only has to do with His ability. This is why he says, verse 17, so he testifies, you're priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He says, for on one hand, there's an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For notice he says, verse 19, he says plainly, the law made nothing perfect. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, he says, there's a bringing in of a better hope by which or through which we draw near to God. What's the better hope? That our perfect or perfect priesthood has nothing to do with us that has everything to do with him now this is important because when it comes to law or it comes to commands as christians this is something we really struggle with on one end of the spectrum we have jesus followers who think you know no we're not under the law we're not under commands we don't have to do anything we just have to say a sinner's prayer believe something and we can do whatever we want but those people never draw near to God. They don't ever value the sacrifice of Christ. Why? Because they don't see themselves as actual sinners. At least not as sinful as they actually are. On the other hand, you have people go, we're so bad, we're so wretched, and God gave us His law, and His law is good. It reflects His character. We've got to do what God says. We've got to do what God says. And they're trying to please God by their own efforts. And neither of those things are good. Both those things are bad. But in Jesus, what we have is a whole new system, a whole new way of thinking, a whole new way of us relating to God. L- listen to what the scripture says. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, okay? Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. They're not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Wherefore, or, I'm sorry, whoever, sorry, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, listen, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Jesus says this in Matthew 5, he's talking to people that think the most righteous people on this planet are these Pharisees, these scribes. They do what God wants them to do. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not saying that law is bad. I'm not saying it doesn't need to be fulfilled. I'm telling you, you need to fulfill it in such a way that goes so beyond them. It's got to exceed, far exceed how righteous you think they are or you're not getting into heaven. Now, why does he say that? He says that this. Why? Because what did he say in the beginning of that section? He says, he came to fulfill it. Don't you see? Jesus fulfills the law perfectly, righteously, so that he can give us that, he can credit that righteousness to our account so that the Father can look at us and say, you fulfilled the law perfectly. Now, does that mean that we don't have any commands that we follow? No, we do have commands. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the point is this, listen. The point is, he's saying there's a whole new way that we approach God. Listen to what the scripture says Galatians chapter 3. But before faith came, we were were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might follow, uh, that we might, sorry, be justified by faith. But after faith came, we are no longer under a tutor. In other words, listen, even though God's law was perfectly a perfect standard, even though the priesthood was meant for the good of those who were under it, guess what? When Jesus comes, that which was just exposing that we were imperfect, Jesus comes as the perfect one. He gives us his righteousness. He calls us as those who are going to be made perfect. And listen, he says, you're no longer under the law. So that rather than saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, do this, Jesus just simply says, come, follow me. That's it. Just follow me. Just trust me. Just walk with me. Just relate through me. The law makes it clear that there has to be another priesthood. Jesus is the only one who could fulfill that. Quickly, I'm almost done. Verse 20. So this, he establishes this better priesthood. It's foreshadowed, Melchizedek, it's necessary because of the law, but also, lastly, it's eternal in him, eternal in Jesus. He says, verse 20, and inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, he says, because no priest were made by an oath, but here's the, here's the reality. Jesus was because he, With an oath by him who said, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, God gave an eternal oath. And because God made an eternal oath, he swore by himself, as we saw last week, listen, that means we have surety, or as we said last week, a better guarantee of a better covenant. We'll talk about that better covenant in a couple weeks when we get to chapter eight. But just know this, it's Jesus who guarantees it God says, this is my promise to you. It's Jesus. This is my guarantee that you're going to be right with me forever. It's Jesus. It's an eternal promise. But it's not just that. Jesus isn't just, God didn't just give this eternal oath. Listen, Jesus is also this eternal intercessor, the one who mediates. Listen to this, check it out. Says, and also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. In other words, there's a whole line of Levitical priests. Why? Because they kept dying. Mm-hmm. And they got to be replaced. He says, this is what happens. In other words, death conquered even the best priests in the Levitical system. But Jesus conquered death. He says, verse 24, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Now, now listen to me. This is really important. Jesus doesn't just provide our salvation. He maintains our salvation. Did you hear me? He maintains our salvation. Listen, listen. It says, He has an unchangeable priesthood. Why are we able to approach God? Why are we able to know that we're right with God forever because of what He's done? Does He change? No. Does His priesthood change? No. What does that mean? Our place with Him doesn't change. If you come from a background where you really think, man, I can lose my salvation or I'm going to lose my salvation or whatever, you need to understand what this is saying. This is saying so clearly to us, listen, as long as we're in Jesus, we are secure. We are His his priesthood continues. That's why he says in verse 25, a very famous verse, he says, therefore, Jesus is also able to save to the uttermost. One old-time evangelist said, Jesus is able to save to the guttermost. (laughs) Those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession. Jesus is interceding for us. He's He's the go-between, between a righteous God and the unrighteous people is our righteous Savior. And he intercedes, or he, he says to the Father, Father, you can accept them because of my wounds, because of what I've accomplished. And the Father delights and says, yes, they're mine because of you. He intercedes for us. Because do you know what this means? Listen, it means that not only does Jesus maintain our salvation, but listen, our salvation is never about whether or not we're worthy of it. When it says he saves to the uttermost, it means it doesn't matter how bad you are, Jesus is able to save you. The question is never am I worthy of salvation? You're not. Neither am I. Never. The question is this, is Jesus able to provide it for you? So that's the difference between being a Christian and not being a Christian. It's not because you do all the right moral things or you don't do all the right moral things. The difference between being a Christian and not being a Christian is who do you trust? If you think the question is always, am I worthy, am I worthy, am I worthy, all you're going to be is either self-righteous or in despair. But when you recognize the question is, is he able? Is Jesus able to make me right with God? And that the answer is an astounding yes and amen, then you'll know how great it is to know our God. Then you'll know what real freedom is. Verse 26, he says, for we have such a high priest, for such a high priest was fitting, literally suitable for us. Here's what it says about Jesus, okay? Not only is, is he the eternal intercessor, he's eternally perfect. It says, he, he who is holy, and the word for holy there is specific. a specific word that means holy before God. There's a word for holy that means set apart by God. This is a word that means holy. Holy before God, that God says this is holy. It's a, it's a, it's a word that's usually only used about God. He is holy. He's harmless or gentle. I don't know about you, but I, I, when I think about an all powerful, all knowing God, I find that kind of scary. I'm scared of God that, in that sense. He could crush me like a bug. I mean, I, I just, and He, he should. <laughs> and it's scary. But you know what? When I see Jesus, God's only son, and I see him as harmless, gentle, I realize I don't have to be afraid of God because God's proven that his character is one that he has made a way that we can approach him. Though he should squish us, he doesn't. He brings us in and adopts us into the family. It says, listen, he's undefiled, separate from sinners. Separate doesn't mean that he's, he stands away from us as sinners. Separate means he's distinct from us. He's perfect. That's why he can provide for us perfection. And has, notice, listen, become higher than the heavens. This is a a reference to his ascension. Jesus dies, he resurrects, they see him ascend into heaven. Jesus' ascension, the fact that they saw him ascend into the Father's presence is why we know that he's right. He's the righteous one. His character is perfect. Not only is his character perfect, listen, almost done, his offering is perfect. Verse 27, he... I'm sorry, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own, then for the other people's, but for this he did, notice, once for all. That phrase is gonna come up a couple more times in Hebrews, especially in chapter 10, and we'll look at it deep in there. But it means what it says, once for all. When Jesus died, it was good enough for all your sins, past, present, and future. When Jesus died, it was good enough for all humanity, whether they believe or not. And we can't receive the, the benefit of that unless we believe, but it's enough for everybody. Once for all. When Jesus was on the cross in John chapter 19, one of the things that Jesus says on the cross is this. It says, when John, or Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, notice, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. In other words, crucifixion didn't kill him. Jesus chose to die. And when he says, it is finished, listen, in the Greek language, it's one word, tetelestai. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but still. Tetelestai. You know what that word means? Paid in full. They would stamp tetelestai on, on cargo that would come into ports that had paid their custom tax. Okay, that's been paid for. Stamp, tetelestai, paid in full. What does Jesus say on the cross? Paid in full. What's paid in full? Your sins. Last verse. For the law appoints a high priest as high priests men who have weaknesses, but the word of the oath, the oath that God made, listen, which came after the law, appoints the son who has been perfected forever. His character is perfect. His offering is perfect. His position is Perfect. What do we read in the beginning of Hebrews? Hebrews chapter one. Jesus is the brightness of God's glory, the express image of God's person and is upholding all things by the word of his power when he, made, when he had by himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus has done it and he sits at the right hand of the father in a perfect and permanent position And the Bible says if we believe in Him, we're seated with Him in that same place. Now you might be here today thinking, I don't need a priest. I can do my own thing. If there's a God, I'll approach Him on my own strength. But I'm not even sure if He's real. I don't know if I need a priest. Let me tell you something. Not only is God real, but you definitely need a priest. (laughs) You need a priest to approach Him. And the good news is, There's a perfect priest, a perfect priesthood. His name is Jesus. And he has made a way for us to be forgiven and free and to have the very thing that you were created to have, a relationship with God.